Hello and welcome to Level Up with Shay. I'm so excited to introduce you to today's guest, Nikki Endress. Nikki is an adopted Asian American, non-binary, trans-feminine, queer actor, comedian, voice artist, and audiobook narrator. They can be seen in The Dropout, on Hulu, NCIS Los Angeles on CBS, One Day at a Time, Lucifer, and On the Verge on Netflix, Veneno on HBO Max, amongst many other credits. Nikki has also narrated and co-narrated multiple books, including Lead Me Astray, The Boy with a Bird in His Chest, How to Money, and How You Get Famous all of which can be found on Audible. If you want to get a taste of their audiobook narration style, go to their website because they narrate their own bio. It's really fascinating how many things they can do with their voice. Nikki has a stand-up special called Asian Americanized, which can be found on the Real Women's Network and features two other Asian American immigrants where they share stories and struggles with identity, sexuality, and survival in modern day America. In this episode, we talk about how Nikki sees their differences as a gift the importance of telling our own stories, the wisdom they learned from studying martial arts, how success is a state of mind, and Nikki shares with us their true hero, Xena Warrior Princess. Please welcome to Level Up with Shay, Nikki Indris. Hello everyone and welcome to Level Up with Shay. I am so excited about today's guest, very talented in so many different ways, Nikki Indris. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, of course. I'm so excited to learn more about your life, how you got to where you are today. You've done so many awesome things, just seeing on your social media, on Facebook, on Instagram. I want to celebrate you in that way for doing so many awesome and different things that, you know, a lot of people just don't do, don't try to do. So I'm excited to learn more about that. Well, thank you for that. I got to say with the social media, like that is a conscious thing that I've been working on. So it's fantastic to hear that my efforts have not been in vain. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Like all things, right? You get better with practice, but sometimes it's just starting. That's really hard. (laughs) Yeah. And, And finding yourself and who you are and who you want to show to the world. Mm. Yeah, it's a journey for sure. And that's what we're going to talk about today. I want to start in your childhood and just kind of get to know who Nikki was, is how you became who you are today. You grew up in Wisconsin, Mm. you were adopted, Asian American. And no, when I was researching you and learning more about you, I saw that, you know, you realized at a young age that you didn't really identify with the people around you. You found that you were different from them. You know, I think about myself as a child, I felt like I was different in certain ways from the people around me. And you actually embraced this and embraced these differences, which I think is so cool because I think, you know, even as little kids or growing up as adults, we take these differences and then we like other ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so how did you identify that you were different and how did you embrace that from the word go? Oh gosh. I am blessed with great parents really, I think is the short answer because for those uh, who are just meeting me through this podcast today, (laughs) my name's Nikki. My pronouns are they, them, and she, her. I am an adopted Asian American, non-binary, trans-feminine, queer, polyamorous artist, actor, comic, audiobook narrator, et cetera. The thing is, even at like three years old, when I kind of just knew I wasn't cis, but didn't have the language for it and didn't have the language to understand or to like communicate queerness, the thing that everyone could see is that I'm Asian. And, you know, I'm adopted. My parents are white. I grew up in Wisconsin around a bunch of white people. And it was not an environment where it was like, oh, how wonderful it is to have, you know, international diverse representation. It's so cool that we are loving and including of everyone. It was, oh, well, we're not saying we have anything wrong with you, but you know you're different, right? You, we, you know you're weird. You know you're not normal, right? It's almost like that kind of 
those microaggressions. I mean, it was just as hateful, you know what I mean? Because it wasn't coming from a place of um, inclusion and love. It was an us versus them sort of thing. So I was very much aware from as long as, as far back as I can remember that I was different. Mm-hmm. What I learned as I grew older was that I was different in almost every way imaginable, <laughs> not on purpose. It's just who I am. But yeah, I would say that because I had parents who were, my mom especially was a kindergarten teacher. So she specialized in early childhood, like cognitive development and learning. She gave me the concepts and the language to basically as a five-year-old give teaching moments to full-grown adults who would be like, oh, you're that, you're that little oriental child. You know, are you a real kid? And I was like, um, okay, first of all, oriental is for objects. Asian is for people. And second of all, it's like, adopted children are still real children and we have real families but I was five like (laughs) what child why would you ever I mean it's I think it's unfair to put Mm -hmm. such a young juvenile being in the position of defending their uniqueness defending their right to exist especially to adults who minimize and dehumanize them even if they're not doing it on purpose by perpetuating harm and stereotypes and prejudice all of that affects kids you know kids are little sponges and so right away I I knew I was different and my parents knew I was different too it's like now we're we're like oh it's kind of obvious you were queer it's obvious that you were trans but none of nobody in my growing up environment had the language or had friends who were queer and out or trans or non-binary or like that it's not that it didn't exist it's that those people weren't out it was not safe to be out or, you know, they were sick because, you know, I'm, I was born in the early 80s. You know what I mean? So it's like when I was a kid, that was in the middle of the AIDS pandemic. So there was a lot of fear and hatred towards just queer people at that time. And, you know, I was growing up in a conservative area of the country. You know, those before the internet, you know, it's not like I could just go f- seek refuge in drag race or something. You know what I mean? Like yeah, it wasn't... Yeah. You know, it was before Will and Grace, you know, before straight cis people welcomed queer humor into their homes. You know, it's before all of that. So even though it was hard and I endured othering and alienation and bullying and everything for as long as I can remember, which I've since come to appreciate my otherness and my queerness as a gift. So it's just, I feel very lucky that I've been working on being able to use language and concepts and stories to define who I am since I was three. I didn't have the words to say I'm non-binary trans. I thought there was only one way to be trans until I was like 30, until after Laverne Cox was already on time, did I discover that trans isn't just one thing and trans itself isn't binary, doesn't have to be binary, I should say. Some trans people are binary trans. So it's like, it's ever evolving our language, even though the concepts are as old as humanity. You know what I mean? Trans people, non-binary people, third gender people, fourth, fifth, sixth gender people have been cross-culturally present throughout the eons of humanity. But again, like they might have certain words or terms or um, societal structure carved out for them in those cultures over time. But in 21st century American culture, it's a different landscape. And we've largely been erased. So again, all of this is a very long-winded way to say how thankful I am that my parents taught me before I learned martial arts and learned how to stand up for myself physically. I was, I guess, taught to have mental fortitude in being able to know that I'm loved and that I belong, even if other people don't understand me, even if I don't have the words to help people understand me. Not that it is my responsibility But again, I feel like that's something that I've taken into my career as an artist is that regardless as if it's fair that I should hold the burden and emotional labor of helping people be nice to me, I view it as it's not just about me. It's about helping educate and teach people how expansive, inclusive thinking and an open heart, it's good for everyone. It's not just people who are marginalized. I mean, we are the most vulnerable to the lack of that. You know, the mo- it's the most refreshing experience when we encounter the embracing of that. But really, I mean, 
you know, I like to think of, I forget who said it best, but you know, it's, it's not that there's such thing as normal, just the things are common. And I think that when, you know, there's strength in numbers, when you belong to a group that is common, that has a majority, that's very low risk, if you conform, that's a safe place to be. It's very hard to imagine leaving it or leaving it voluntarily. I think people only leave it voluntarily when it's really kind of an existential life or death situation. You know, my happiness, my ability to live and thrive versus kill myself or my child, you know, and until it hits home really personally for people, a lot of people just don't even make time or space for it. And I think that that's too bad because it's not just about me. It's not just about them. It's about humanity and the way that we want our entire species to move forward into the future. And well, also just the meta of being adopted. I was wanted, even though I surprised my parents, right? They're like, oh, we don't know what to do with this child. We love this child. We're going to just do our best and hope for the best. Which I think every parent has to deal with. Yeah. I think I really benefited from a sense of education and justice that my parents instilled in me. Um, And it definitely made me, gave me survival skills and tactics. And I feel like finally, after decades (laughs) of working through, you know, that kind of trauma, really, as an adult and and as an artist, and at this point in my career, I think that I'm, you know, I've healed from enough of it that I can be more generous and less um, self-protecting. And I can put more out into the world and connect with more people just with a more generous spirit. So I'm I'm happy to be on that leg of my life journey right now. Yes, thank you for sharing that. I relate to a lot of that. And I mean, one thing being language is, is very important. And, you know, we say different in this context, you know, with the quotes around it different, mm. because it's not that we're necessarily different. It's like you said, we aren't common. Uh, you know, it's not like we're not normal. It's just we're not common with our surroundings. I wasn't common, you know, in my little town of 600. Oof. I Right, right. Uh, technically a village. Uh, but in Atlanta right now, I'm more common. And again, with the whole generosity thing, I, I think over the past couple of years, I've also come to that point of being more generous and not being as self-protective. And maybe a lot of that is with my family who, you know, maybe I feel unintentionally hurt me in some ways. And so I would lash out, but now I realize, oh, I can be more generous with who I am and kind of heal from that trauma. I think that's probably where it comes from. But you mentioned something about belonging and you realized that you belonged in your family, in this world in general. And I kind of want to move towards that because, you know, sometimes I'll walk into a room and I'll feel like, oh, do I belong here? You know, if I'm not common in that area, I kind of question, do I belong here? How do I fit in here? So just, I kind of want to know from your perspective, like, have you ever felt that way, kind of walking into a room or getting in some type of community or group where you had to really remind yourself that you belonged? Oh, every time I pee, every time I use the bathroom. Oh my gosh. I have to be like, I belong. Yes. And the thing is, it's like, and I'm very lucky because I'm, cis passing. I don't even identify as binary trans, but it's it's the privilege that my culture, regardless of my identity, reads me as a woman, as a cis woman, that I can use a bathroom and nobody gives me shit. I've gotten shit when I use the men's bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's before I like fully transitioned. I was sort of in in flux. And that was very hard because no matter there was no right choice at that point in time. So I just want to recognize that I have the, these days I have that kind of privilege, but that doesn't change a lifetime of other things. So every time I said, I just take a deep breath. I'm like, I belong here. I'm in Los Angeles. Like it should be okay for me here, but it's yeah. Every time I pee, but then too, that happens. It has happened all the time. Every time growing up too, being the only Asian person. And then because I'm adopted, I grew up with white people now in LA, you know, I enter spaces full of other Asian Americans, no less. And it's still that, oh, well, do I belong now? I mean, they all speak like six different languages and have grandparents in different countries. And But it's the reminder. I'm like, but that's the beauty of difference in variety, though. I mean, like, am I just perpetuating my own 
internalized idea that Asian is a monolithic thing and all Asian Americans are have the same story. We are so diverse. And and so yeah, it's it's a daily reminder. And the th- the thing that I want to bring up though is that it's like I think that should be a daily reminder for everybody. Mm-hmm. It's just that because I look the way I am and because my identity is the way I am, I don't get a break from it. I, I don't ever get to just zone out and be all like, oh, well, maybe this Maybe I don't have to think about this today. And I think that if we could transmute that from an anxiety thing, ooh, do I belong? Am I safe? To a point where how can I make everyone know that they belong and are safe, right? So it's not even about me. It's about what I can contribute to an environment, a room, a company, a organization. It's leadership, I guess. It's, you know, it's 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 that emotional leadership and um because I really do think that with diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI, we leadership is more than just at the top, some CEO saying, okay, we got to do this now. It's at every level, every person voluntarily makes it a priority because it's the right thing to do, but also because it's it's actively undoing the bad shit, the exclusionary shit, the oppressive shit. You know, it's like how we say it's not enough to just not be racist. We have to be anti-racist. But the thing is, because I've embraced that as a mission and a vision and a value sort of thing for my own self, it's like, I don't want a day off anymore because I, I, I've chosen to rise to the occasion and be an emotional leader. And yes, it's onerous to have teaching moments. Yes, but like I've lived with it my whole life since I was three years old. So, you know, maybe this is just my destiny in life and you know, I'm choosing to love it and embrace it instead of fight it. Yeah, and it's so interesting how we also have to question ourselves, like you said, with, okay, being Asian isn't just this one type of Asian. Like mm. that is so stereotypical that we have to work to fight those stereotypes as well, uh, which is so interesting. And you talk about storytelling and telling your own story. You just, you love storytelling just in general. I kind of want to know more about that of, no, I feel like this life is, you know, a canvas in a way, right? Mm. We get to paint the canvas of our life. We get to tell our own story, write our own story. So how do you find yourself telling your own story? And and also, I, I think we can get in this habitual way or thought patterns of waking up every day and just kind of being reminded of our past and then just perpetuating that into our future, if that mm. makes sense. Yeah. My therapist would say it's because the things that feel familiar feel safe and right, even if they're not. So that's why history repeats itself. Yes, And we can do that as artists if we want to really build something and become this person who we admire, become like these other people that we admire. Sometimes it can be hard to break out of those patterns. But if we can understand how to write our own story day in and day out and keep pushing that envelope, then, you know, we can wake up each day and have a blank piece of paper to tell our story. So you know, how do you tell your story and keep pushing the envelope and keep it going? Mm, yeah, that's a good question. I guess as an artist, and especially as an actor, stories are so important to me because they're who we are. Even the word history is story. <laughs> the story told by the people who won the power game, who won the yeah. Game of Thrones. But stories are such a rich multi-dimensional way to focus on specific, oftentimes very complex things that we experience as human beings that need to be contextualized or um, given uh, dynamics to bring out certain features. Because talking about a thing directly is often too overwhelming um, or too confusing, or it's just contradictory. There's no right or good, perfect way to see it. So I think stories help give us context and texture. And so when it comes to one's personal story, you know, we don't know the future. And some of us, you know, we can't all just graduate therapy in one session. So it's like, when it comes to writing our own stories, I think a lot of it has to do with kind of radical acceptance 
I guess I, I, a little bit on purpose, a little bit finding it by accident or through other people that I respect and trust, like a lot of Eastern philosophy, Buddhist and Zen philosophy and Taoism. Well, and even the AA prayer, right? It's, you know, the wisdom of knowing what is in one's direct control and what are things that are not. And letting go of the need to control. Um, and I would even say the need to dominate the need to be right, the, like letting go of the egoic things that center my own self-protection, psychological self-protection, you know, above everyone else's own need for to self-protect. I think there is a way where we can all protect each other. And there's no one right way. But for me right now, I guess what I would say in writing one's own story is think about it as a self-fulfilling prophecy that without knowing the future or controlling the future, we can still prepare for the best case scenario, I do believe in self-fulfilling prophecies. I think that we set ourselves up to experience the world in a certain way, in a very basic, it's not magic, it's psychology. It's like, if I am more interested, and the thing is, it's genuine interest. It's not about, I mean, you can fake it for a little bit, because I think neurologically, like, just to get in a habit, just doing the thing gets us there. But it's like, just by assuming, <laughs> radical overconfidence, assuming I'll figure it out, assuming I'll be okay because I trust that I'm smart and capable and I can ask for help. No matter how hard life is, no matter how much my culture tells me that I'm not worthy, I can resist. I can make friends. I can find support. I'm not alone. Reminding and telling ourselves these things and then doing them, I think, is fundamentally helps us carry on into the future, even in, in dark times, especially in, in dark times. But also, it can be very simple. It's like making a mission, vision, values for your own self. You're the CEO of your own life, right? I'm an entertainer, so I think about my branding. But for me, brand is values. It's, it's the values that I talk about publicly as opposed to any of the ones I keep privately. And again, because I'm me and I'm used to airing out all of my personal information to strangers at the grocery store, um, this is just my life. Like for some people, they might keep their orientation more close to the vest. Maybe they're not in a safe place to be out. No shade. Like you got to take care of yourself. But for me, I, you know, I want to be, I think about the future. It's not even what I want to be someday. It's who am I today and how do I want to contribute to the world today so that I can enjoy that in the future? So if I want to be, if I want a future with more emotional literacy, more emotional dexterity, a more open-mindedness, you know, open-heartedness, then that's what I want to be today. And I'm not perfect. Maybe I'll never be perfect. Maybe I'll never be any of those things. I'm kind of a naturally egoic, self-involved, selfish person. And I can say that because I've made peace with that. But And also, now I feel like I can behave differently. I can change that. What I say for myself is prepare for the best case scenario. You know, if, if I want to be a number one on a call sheet, I don't wait to act like a, one and one, a number one on a call sheet. I do today things that a number one in a call sheet does. And for those of you not in Hollywood, when you work on like a television show or a movie, the number one on the call sheet is usually is the lead. You know, they're the person who carries the show. And what some people outside the industry might not know is that why you know, these people, you know, sign away their, con you know, sign away, they don't sign, the, the, the contracts are so big. And oftentimes these people get paid a lot of money. It's not just in like the marketing and the selling of, the product at the end result, it is the day-to-day -day emotional captaining of the ship that is the 12 to 16 hour day that everybody shows up to do for weeks, for months at a time, um, sometimes on location away from their families. You know, the film and television industry can be really hard just physically and, and exhausting, even though a lot of us love it. A lot of us, you know, would love a little bit more humane hours. But um, the, <laughs> the, but the thing is, it's like, it's a huge responsibility to be an emotional leader. It's something I admire. And I've, I've worked with a few who are really just fantastic. Um, on One Day at a Time, Justina Machado is a great example of a great number one on a call sheet. Mm -hmm. She just showed up for work every day with gusto and love and humor and um, just a spirit of having fun and collaboration um, with, you know, the 
deep understanding that what we're doing is important. And the showrunners too, Gloria and Mike on that show. It's, so it's like, it's, it's, it's that kind of emotional leadership. And I'm like, you know what? I can be a number 47 on a call sheet. I could show up for one day and make a lovely monologue and then disappear and never be seen in six seasons again. But I still want to show up to that set bringing the best of my talent, the best of my preparation and the joy of working with other artists. And it's genuine. This is my life. This is what I've chosen to do. It's what brings me happiness. And hopefully someday I'll have a show and continue to do what I've already been doing. And it won't feel foreign because I've prepared myself for that kind of work. I love it. Yes, I love all of that. From the wisdom that you were talking about, two sides of the coin, like it could be very complex, be, can be very simple. And then the emotional leadership we first have to be our own emotional leader. That's how you impact others. Is you start with yourself. And it's funny that you said you don't necessarily ask yourself, who do I want to be? But you ask yourself, who do I want to be today? And I woke up this morning with the thought, with the question in my head, like recently I've been pretty stressed and have had some, uh, just some issues with that, just have gone to therapy and I'm doing better now, but I realized I had so many to-dos. I had so many to-dos, so many goals, so many things on my list that I needed to check off every day. And I realized that it is more of a flow. I want to be in more of a flow with my work. I know I'm going to get everything done that I need to get done. It doesn't have to be so stringent. And, you know, asking myself, waking up and, and thinking, literally thinking of that question of asking myself, who do I want to be today? So it's kind of wild that you brought that exact question up because that's what I woke up in my head with this morning. And I feel like when I ask myself that question, my intuition automatically tells me what I need to do next. Yeah. I call it my like sort of spiritual homework. I, I'm not a religious person, but I do think that for lack of a better term, when I find that I'm actively working on a goal or on um, an idea, uh, I find that I'm, I, I'm just really good at incorporating that into my daily life. Th that's how I make sense of the world, I guess. To me, it's second nature, but I offer this to anyone else who wants to try it. Maybe it's your nature too. So yeah, it's not even like, oh, someday I want my own show. And then I work backwards. <laughs> oh, so what's that mean? Uh, you know, it's like, oh, I'm gonna have to do some, because uh, you know, that's all overwhelming. I have anxiety, it, that's the wrong way for me to go about it. But if I think about it, okay, I want to work on my leadership skills. Great. Then all the opportunities that show up that say, oh, Nikki, would you come give this talk? Oh, Nikki, would you join our board? Oh, Nikki, would you do that? Like, those are all things are like, oh, yes, yes, yes. And if there are other things that are not leadership related, then those get prioritized in a different way. Similarly, it's like, well, do I want to just be a leader because I want to be a politician? Or do I want to be a leader because I'm an artist? It's like prioritize based on those things. And that gives me more momentum. So it's not about doing the goals, right? Yeah booking this gig, reading this book, doing this thing, networking this event, it becomes, it's more flowy because my goal isn't external, it's internal. Mm. It's, am I working on my leadership today? Am I working on my openness today? Am I working on my flexibility today? Like all this sort of self-improvement things. And I find that if you can be gentle and generous with yourself too, that like it's a martial arts idea that there's no such thing as perfect but you do everything as perfectly as possible because settling for less than 100% effort means that you're not being efficient <laughs> about your training. It's, it's, a, like, um, it's a waste of your time. And also it's the principle of the thing. Like one of my instructors would say, practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. But then also the, you know, the, the bamboo sword hitting you at the kneecap is, and there's no such thing as perfect. <laughs> but you know, it's, it, but the idea of perfection exists and now we're going back to like Plato, right? Because <laughs> um, to have that ideal is something to conceptualize, you know, everything else leading up to it that we have to work toward. Similarly, a martial arts thing that I really hold dear is the idea of humility. Within the context I'm speaking, humility isn't just, oh, not being too self-involved and, you know, an asshole. It is really just kind of the simplicity of knowing where you're at. So it's like we have a belt system in most martial arts and it's not a value judgment. It's not like, oh, a black belt is better than white belt. It's that these belts are designed to help people along the curriculum know what they're working on. The black belt is still working on the very basic front kick that is the first lesson that the white belt learns <laughs> as their kicking drill. 
but they're working on different things within that basic front kick, right? So the white belt might just be trying to work on balance. How do I stand in one leg and move the other leg? The black belt might be working on fine tuning, targeting with just that perfect part of the ball of their foot and with speed or something. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, so you're, you're always improving. There's no such thing yeah. as an end result. We're just always trying to be better than we were yesterday. And it's not a value judgment because yesterday was bad. It's just a measure of progress. Like how much are we working towards something? Because I, I really think it's not a matter of laziness. I don't buy that people are lazy. I don't think that at all. I think that is something people in power like to perpetuate as a myth to dehumanize and devalue people who maybe don't have the access that they do. I think that when our bodies are exhausted, we need to listen to them. When we need water, when we need food, when we need, we need sleep, when we need a mental break to check out, we need to do those things. Conversely, I think that we can't seek shelter and respite anywhere for too for too long, you, you know, it, because it becomes like an, a, an addictive kind of thing, right? Where, oh, I don't really need to zone out. I don't really need to scroll through Instagram, but like the pleasure centers of my brain have been hijacked and yes. I keep on wanting. So it's like that self-awareness, right? Yeah. I think that humans don't like to, this is my opinion. I'm not a scientist. I, I think that humans actually like to be quote, busy. Now, I don't mean running around to jobs or childcare or, you know, extracurricular activities. I mean, mentally occupied. I think that, you know, people want to be employed, not just to make a living, but they want to feel like their day-to-day existence is contributing to something that they believe in or something that is important. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that's why a lot of people you know, even though we kind of all need jobs to survive, you know, um, in our economy, there is pickiness. I, and I think rightly so, is this, you know, vocation using skills that I like to execute? Is this helping me grow as a person? Is this exposing me to things that interest me on a daily basis? I think it's also a myth that, oh, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. That's bullshit. I love what I do and I work all the fucking time. (laughs) The thing is, I feel like it's worth it. Mm. I'm getting more than a paycheck for my work. (laughs) Oftentimes, honestly, as an artist, you're not making any money. (laughs) But it's like, um, it's not even about, I mean, I need the paycheck. Yes, please. Thank you. But in addition to that, I'm growing as a person in a way that I would do whether or not I was being given a paycheck. And again, in the case of being an artist, oftentimes that's all you're doing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I would encourage everyone to think about that. Like, what are you good at and what do you love? And then is there any way to make money off of anything remotely related to those things? Remotely, remotely. Let's say you like games. You don't have to be a video game designer or a board game designer. What if you just like puzzles? What if being a solutioner, a consultant for something else that you're good at, or like working in marketing, you know, helping people, you know, be a casting director helps, you know, solve puzzles, <laughs> yeah. you know, like there, like think about the ways that your brain is engaged with these other things. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think that there's a wealth of things that people can find that they enjoy and that they're passionate about if they're just really honest with themselves about what they like and are a little creative about the way they interpret that. Yeah, I think it's it's getting more, you know, widespread that we can actually take things that we like and make money off of them. <laughs> like it used to be an idea of like, you can't make money off of that. You know, I, I've heard the example of somebody made a class, online class on how to make cupcakes. And they make thousands of dollars off of that. Just because of the internet, that is actually a possibility now. Yeah. And to that point, Mm -hmm. sometimes, like in my case, you go into it thinking, oh, I want to be an artist. I want to study literature and theater and I want to tell stories. And then you figure out, oh, but this is a lot of taxes. This is a lot of economics. This is a lot of marketing. This is a lot of business. This is a lot of CEO startup shit that I have zero interest or passion in, but I have to do because I can't afford someone else to do it. Yes. Similarly, you might love making cupcakes. Do you love teaching? Do you love marketing? Do you love hyping food? Do you love networking with other food lovers and sweet lovers and dessert lovers? 
like all of that enters the picture, right? Mm -hmm. So my advice there is also be open. Don't be too narrowly focused on the thing that you love. Because quite frankly, if you know that you are loving something enough, all the other shit that you do not love, that's going to be required for you to do the thing that you do, it's going to feel worth it. It's a lot of work and it's exhausting, but it's aimed at a, at a more beautiful end, you know? And, and if you're doing it for yourself versus just some company that's, you know, benefiting off of all of that, then, you know, that's kind of the beauty of, that's why I'm an independent worker, you know? But, you know, but there's trade-offs, you know? Less security. I don't imagine my future having certain things, but also, because I want to reframe that, those things are less important to me, mm. you know? having a nice car or living in a big house or in just a certain zip code or even having kids, like all of those things, if those are things that you love, if, if being a parent or, you know, hosting, being able to host things for your friends, maybe you're, you want a space to do that. If those are all important to you, you're going to find a way to work those in to what you choose to do with the rest of your life. You know what I mean? Like my parents wanted to be parents. So my dad jumped around between like, oh gosh, seven different jobs throughout growing up from wildly different industries. Because, you know, as much of a problem solver as, as he is, and, you know, he got that out of going to work, you know, his number one was raising a family, putting his kids through school. So for him, like all of those, some of those jobs he liked more than others, but ultimately they were feeding that goal. For me, I'm an artist. I want to a career of storytelling and working with amazing, talented people. And you know what? I don't like kids. So, you know, that's just, that's hundreds of thousands of dollars that I'm saving that I don't have to begin with (laughs) Um, because I'm pursuing this other thing. But the thing is, like, I know people, me, I have friends who they want families. They want to raise kids. They want to do these things. But the life that they're living as an artist has not supported that. So at a certain time, they kind of retire or they shift careers. You know, they don't give up acting, but you know, they go into a different way. Maybe they manage a theater or they teach or they you know, become an agent or something. Why I bring this up, I guess, is like, don't think about changing as giving up. Think about it as prioritizing. And when we're talking about leveling up, sometimes leveling up, means the horizontal move Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because it's all about what you're building towards for what it's worth. Yeah, I I agree. And that is why on my logo, if you go and look at my logo, there's an, it's an arrow, but it goes up and then to the side and then up and to the side. And it's because it's not straight diagonal up. And then, you know, you see those like maps of success. It's like how you think success is like start to finish and it's a horizontal line, but actually it's like all of these circles and, you know, changes and yeah, Yeah. it's different paths. It's like we mentioned at at the beginning, a journey and, and it's a state of mind, isn't it? Success is a state of mind. I think that, you know, even though I talked about humility earlier about knowing where you're at, I think that also includes wins. We got to focus on the good shit. We got to, you know, and it's not like, oh, the failures don't mean anything. The failures turn into educational moments. Oh, learn something from this. And the wins, no matter how small, no matter how small. Oh, someone I'm a really big fan of watched my special. Didn't say anything about it. Didn't tweet it. Didn't contact me. But uh, I saw them at, I saw them at the screening. That's a win. Like no matter how small it is, if it, you know, if it brings you joy and if it aligns with your values and your ultimate goals, like celebrate it shamelessly. We we have to hang on to every moment of joy and success that we have because that's what keeps us going. We can't afford to minimize ourselves and, and make ourselves small. I love that. I love it so much. Before, so I have a couple more questions, but before I ask yeah. those last questions, I know how much you love Xena Warrior Princess. You have, I I, I don't know what to call Chakram. it. What's that? Chakram. Chakram. Uh, Chakram in, in your background on the video. I want you to share with us why Xena Warrior Princess has made such an impact in your life. And, mm. you know, I'm sure there's a story behind Xena, right? And and something that maybe you've adopted a little bit of. So please share, share Xena Warrior Princess with us. Oh gosh. I this could be this could be a week-long <laughs> seminar, Shay. I'm <laughs> okay. So I said I'm a non-religious person. 
So no shade. I do not mean to blaspheme for those of you who love Jesus, but Xena is my Jesus. Okay. <laughs> so, so Xena Warrior Princess is a syndicated television show. You can see it somewhere. I think on sci-fi maybe runs re- reruns now and then. It's an action drama that's very self-aware and it has this wonderful blend of genuine serious drama and camp that's self-aware of its genre background. It comes from sort of a kung fu and horror movie. The creators kind of have love in those genres, so you get kind of all of that. And there's lots of homages to classic uh, films and tropes. It's It was very 90s. I'm in love with it. It's It got me a few times. And Xena was ahead of her time. This show existed at a time where we didn't have gay people on television. And Xena and Gabrielle, who are bi, canonically, everything was subtext. So it was like one of the only queer shows on television that said nothing about being queer because they couldn't. You know, they would have longing looks or the and and to be fair, it's like Lucy Laws and Renee O'Connor, the leads in this show, they were not aiming, oh, these characters are lovers. It was more like, I mean, the writers knew what they were doing, but the subtext line was so perfectly walked and that it was so subtle that if you were queer, obvious, but if you're (laughs) a network executive, right over your head. I think that with the internet and awareness, well, and queer people on TV these days, the subtext by today's standards, like it, it wouldn't, it's it's something so uniquely 90s. So it, it encapsulates sort of my teenage years. So Zeno's a little ahead of her time, not only just the television show itself for existing, but also the character of Zeno was very um, feminist, I guess, in the sense that anything a man can do, a woman can do. But it was also gave us that extra boost of a woman can do better. Like Zeno was the character that all the straight men wanted, all the queer women and straight women wanted, and or wanted to be. And she always won. Like there was, it was one of the, it's like those good old fashioned, like before we had the anti-hero. <laughs> well, she was sort of an anti-hero. She was a dark hero. But um, before we had, you know, rooting for like Walter White, the bad guy to maybe succeed in his evil plan. We had good old fashioned heroes that, okay, Zena's been blinded and, and Gabrielle's been kidnapped. How is she going to get out of this? Oh, we know she's going to get out of it by the end of the episode. You know, so it's like, but that was part of the adventure, that kind of procedural, we always know kind of the order of things that are going to happen, which was very satisfying for me as a troubled teen, just knowing that for one 55-minute episode every Saturday for 22 weeks out of the year, I would have an adventure where the queer woman was going to kick ass and always win. That was just so important to me. And I didn't realize, I didn't internalize it that way at the time, but it, it was one of those things. But then also it's like the evolution of Xena, she originated as a villain. It's a redemption story. And I, I mean, I loved it just as someone who was dealing with, like now I know I have anxiety. So I'll just say it. Like I didn't know I had anxiety back then, but... I'm dealing with that, but I'd say like anyone dealing with addiction or someone who, you know, is a survivor of any kind of abuse that the idea of moving from the darkness to the light, but not, Zena never got rid of her dark side. She just claimed ownership Mm -hmm. over her good side, right? But with the internal world of Zena, it's not oversimplified. And that's what's so cool. We find her in melodramatic moments where she's fighting the king of hell. Okay, bad guy, right? (laughs) But Zena as a character is a mixture of, quite frankly, a talented warrior who loves and is good at killing people and a noble hero with noble ideals of uh, equality and fairness and justice who wants to be a champion for those who can't stand up for themselves or lack her physical prowess to be able to stand against those who would kill them and enslave them. So it's it's this mixture, right? And I, they even did an episode about this in the fifth season called Chakram, where we learn the origins of the Chakram. And anyway, there's I want to explain the whole plot, but there's this great line where Gabrielle, her best friend, girlfriend, wife, is like, <laughs> she's saying, you know, Zena's dark side, she was always kind of afraid of because Gabrielle's like the, the goody character. But after all these years of traveling and all the th- adventures they've had together, she's come to learn that it's an integral part of her and that it's the darkness is what makes her light so strong. 
and that she needs both sides to be the best that she can be. And I just love that. Whether you have an addiction or, you know, you're told that you're not enough or, you know, you're a survivor, I feel like embracing the darkness and then transmuting that into a positive thing is a story that can resonate with everyone. And oh, quite frankly, it makes me like, it moves me. It's just, it's a really cool um, exploration of, you know, where the line is between good and bad and how many bad deeds or how many good deeds do we have to do to make up for all the bad that we've done in the past? Is simply being on the path now enough? Like for Gabrielle, that was enough. She believed the moment she met Zena, she believed that Zena was good and that Zena had changed, that Zena is a hero for the millennia. But Zena always doubted herself, you know, and that even though she, in the fourth season, you know, they go to India, they get the spiritual awakening, and she realizes that, okay, the way of the warrior is her way, and that, yes, maybe she fights and maybe she kills people, but that's ultimately for the greater good. I love that, and just how much good do we have to do to erase the bad? Like, that hits hard, just because I, I feel like I've dealt with a lot of doubt, insecurity, or, you know, not good enough at this thing or, or whatever. And it also reminds me, like, Gabrielle, like, you need to have that friend who sees the good in you no matter what. Unconditional positive regard. Yeah, unconditional. I love that. So thank you for sharing, Zena, with us. I'll be waiting for that PowerPoint. Um, <laughs> put on a workshop or something. So, okay, a couple more questions. First one, what is something you've been doing lately to level up? What is something I've been doing? Oh, well, my entire Q1, 2022 is the very first year that I am a full-time artist. Any of my other side gigs or whatever, other than just like on-camera acting or voiceover, you know, um, audiobooks, it's all art. So, or directly related to my brand as artist, I should say. And so, yeah, my first, the whole Q1 was just exhausting. I was um, starting up my audiobook business, I guess. I was updating my marketing across the board. So website, headshots, which also then includes resume, IMDB, all the casting sites that my agent manager uses, a castability sheet from agent manager to kind of like, be in sync about the next step for my career, and then a lot of social media and press, and starting a newsletter. And uh, so I'm uh, I'm Substack. It's sort of like a newsletter slash blog. That's the way that I publish all of my news and stuff because I didn't want to host my own blog on my website. And <laughs> and I did everything by myself. So I mean, I paid for the photos to be taken, but I retouched everything. I'm the one that makes them into online assets. I built the website. I did all of, I mean, I didn't code it. I use Avada. Shout out to Avada. You are an amazing WordPress theme. Y'all, it has not risen in price for as long as I've had it, which has been like 10 years. And it includes, okay, give me a little something Avada because I'm advertising for you. I just, I I highly recommend it, y'all. It's, I mean, I I have built websites before for my day job, but I'm not a coder. Mm -hmm. So if you are at all interested in website building, but don't know code, it's perfect solution for you. And it's so rich in terms of your options. So I'm very proud. I worked really hard on my website. Um, I was working on demos for my audiobook narration, which thankfully was part of the Penguin Random House mentorship program that I'm a part of that I'm so thankful for. Penguin Random House is one of those companies that has a really, that's committed to DEI and has, you know, programs to help promote and catch up people who have marginally who have marginalized historically been marginalized or left behind to just get us into the marketplace to work and you know because it's an economy technically you know compete but i want to reframe that and that it's not we're, we're competing in you know capitalism mm-hmm. but to participate at all yeah. in getting jobs. And you know, guess what? The jobs that I'm getting are not the ones, I'm not taking them away from anyone, okay? Like, if you want a non-binary trans person to talk about drag, like, oh, geez, that straight white guy is not going to be able to talk about black queens in Brooklyn. Like, anyway, the thing is, Q1 was... <sighs> the thing people don't tell you when you say, I want to be an artist, I want to be an actor, I want to be whatever is that what they mean is you have to learn how to be a CEO 
And I feel like getting like my values and my branding and all that was all like, just, I just needed that in order to do the rest to make sure everything was in line. Like I chose colors for strategic reasons. Okay. And I'm an artist. So that was fun for me. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. But like some people are like, not, that's not their thing. So it just, I, I just want to put it out there. It's like being an artist is hard work. It is not frivolous. And if anything, it's like, I'm a jack of all trades. I'm a clever little fox. I may not be the best at any one thing, but if you average out everything except for sports, I can do okay. I, I just think we're entering an age where we kind of owe it to ourselves to try doing everything ourselves. Just give it a try. Just to see, do you discover something that you like or that you're good at that you didn't know of? Or did, have you discovered things that are absolutely could not pay me enough to do this job? All of that is information for you to level up in whatever other areas of your life that you want. But that's why I'm like, there's no such thing as, you know, a, a job experience that is a waste of time. We're always learning about ourselves and how we are professionally um, or how we need to change professionally sometimes. Um, foot and mouth, Nikki. But it's, a, it's that growth mindset, you know? And it's, rec again, recognizing those mistakes as, okay, well, this, this is information. I can detach the shame part of it and try to use this to be constructive and build and not get so wrapped up. And as a recovering perfectionist, for all any of y'all listening who are so overwhelmed, you don't even know where to get started, what really helps me is the law of inertia. One step. One step is all it takes. And then the next step is a little easier. And the step after that is a little easier. And I know that sounds trite. And when you're looking at like at the beginning of Q1, I'm just like, oh my gosh, okay. I have no day job. I'm starting audiobooks. I have to get a mic. I have to get equipment. I have to redo my website. I have to, oh, what is all this? What else is this? You know what? Why don't I just try reading this pamphlet I got in the mail that I would otherwise throw away? Why don't I try reading that aloud? Just try it. And it's like, oh, well, how does that get from A to B? It's, it's the mindset. You're reprogramming your mind to think about other things as important. So if narrating and my falling in love with that art form is more important than my intimidation of microphone shopping, then I'll do the microphone shopping and talk to tech people who know what they're talking about and do my research in order to do the thing that I love. And guess what? You'll be surprised by asking for help. Sometimes it goes way smoother. Like my anxiety over finding the right mic that was in my price range that could do all this. Blah, blah, blah. An audio engineer who's part of um, a program that I'm a part of just recognized my, he's like, oh, you should get this one. I'm like, why? And he's like, well, you're trans. You use ranges between baritone and alto. I think my knowledge and love for this mic is going to pick up those frequencies really well and you've got a warmth to your voice and it brings out warmth so that's why I recommend that to you and I'm like okay so I was agonizing over this for two months trying to save up the money to buy a microphone and in in one meeting you gave me a pitch I checked it out found it on sale he even gave me a link he's like oh I think order from these people I trust these people and this one's on sale I got it and it has been butter ever since like there are ways, you know, because you yeah. share the love. When you share the love, people want to help you out. You know what I mean? Yes, I, I totally understand uh, knowing everything, you know, having my own podcast, doing so many, I have an email list, so many things go on behind the scenes, so many things that I've learned. And yeah, then I can recognize, okay, I actually enjoy learning all of this stuff because it gives back, like it allows me to do better at what I really love even more. And that is connecting with people, you know, helping share people's stories, helping people level up and take action. And yeah, it's those little things that sometimes we hold ourselves back from like not learning them because we're like, that's not us, or we're not interested in that specifically. We just want to act. And it's like, it's, it's so much more than that. And then when you feel overwhelmed, yes, ask for help. Ask for help. I love that because there are so many people out there that are willing to help and we just don't know until we ask. So thank you for that. I love uh, Q1. Congratulations on being a full-time artist. That's so exciting. So how can we see all of that? Where can we find you on social media? 
and how can we support you? Oh, thanks. Uh, yeah, just follow, like, repost, recommend. I am mostly on Instagram. My handle is mixnickie. That's at M-X-N-I-C-K-Y-E. You can also just go to my website, nikkiendress.com, and I link everything. Because like, this is one of those things. I want to be easy to find. I want to be easily discoverable. I want everything to be clear and fun and friendly. Please check me out if you want. I welcome you into my little community that I'm I'm building. And um, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Well, one more question. What is one piece of advice you would give someone who wants to solidify who they are, wants to know who they are, and be that person today? That's a big question, Shay. <laughs> oh, made for you. Yeah, I've got a lot of opinions on that. Um, I, I guess, I, I, given what we talked about earlier, it's, it's, it's that who we are is never just one thing. And it's a journey. I guess what I can offer from my personal experience is that you don't need words. Words are helpful. <laughs> Not gonna lie. So if you find words that help, use them. But they can change. Labels are not for everyone. Sometimes labels help us make sense of things, the world, ourselves, etc. And sometimes they restrict us and isolate us. It's up to you to use or not use which, if any, labels are right for you. Just because you don't have any that fit yet doesn't mean that you're any less. And it doesn't mean that you don't deserve to be understood and embraced. I understand it's frustrating, though, in that in-between space because language helps reinforce reality right words provide meaning for ideas and sometimes when we just have the idea it's hard to convey the meaning to someone else so trust yourself love yourself be patient with yourself be kind to yourself it's a journey it took me over half my life to find the words to describe myself and that gave me a lot of solid ground on which to stand. But you know what? You, by the time, if you ever find words to describe yourself and choose to use them, all of that liminal space internally that you're experiencing is actually all the foundation upon which those words, those words are just symbols. They're just helpers to help showcase who you are to someone else or understand, help someone else understand you. They're just symbols. The you work is the internal work that you do without them. So don't fret. You are right where you need to be today. And be kind to yourself. You'll find it. I think we're, we're, we're supposed to be finding these things as humans. I don't think we're supposed to wander not knowing who we are. It's part of our experience. But have faith that you'll, you'll come to yourself. We all, we all do. Yes, I love that. Thank you. And that was a big question. I agree. And I just, I, I do also want to expand on that because I know we're both queer. And so we come from that experience. And sometimes we talk about those identities, the queer identities, but also, you know, we're talking to artists out there. And so I think a lot of people can put labels on us as artists, as a a comedian, you know, I'll say I'm a comedian and people will say, tell me a joke. And I'm like, uh, Okay, no, I, I like to make people laugh. You know, then I'll try to like explain myself or try to figure out, wait, what am I? What type of comedian am I? You know, there are all of these labels. And like you said, the labels can be helpful. But if we can also go in and find what we love, like I said, I enjoy making people laugh. So I can do that through many different ways. It doesn't have to be just acting or just making funny videos. I just wanted to make that point too, because I, I just know with myself being labeled a, a comedian or podcaster, you know, I was even scared mm. of like, okay, getting in a podcast. Well, I'm still a comedian. I don't want people to think that I left comedy. I'm still, and now I'm just podcasting, you know? So, so yeah, I, I like you said, be easy with ourselves. Yeah. Our story is always one that's being written and unfolding. It's, it's not a, a there's no finishing line, yeah. you know? So we have to be happy with where we're at. Yes, totally. Well, Nikki, thank you so much for being here, for sharing your story, for sharing your wisdom. I'm sure a lot of people enjoyed it. 
listening as well. So thank you for being here. I hope so. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you everyone for listening to Level Up with Shay. We will see you next week. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If anything that Nikki said today resonated with you, please go on Instagram, share this episode, and tag me at Level Up with Shay and tag Nikki. You can find Nikki through their beautiful website, social media, subscribe to their Substack for updates, and all of the links to those are in the show notes. Subscribe to Level Up with Shay wherever you get your podcasts. Again, Thank you so much for being here. It's time to level up.